This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 436. This podcast is sponsored by Prevenix, makers of Joint Health Plus, which we take every day to keep our knees and other joints happy. And now they make Muscle Health Plus, the most comprehensive muscle health supplement clinically proven to decrease muscle breakdown, increase lean muscle mass, and boost protein synthesis. Use the code MTA Strength at checkout and have Muscle Health Plus in the cart, and you'll save 15% off your entire order, even if you've previously used our code. Visit Prevenix.com, that's P R E V I N E X.com, and use the code MTA Strength at checkout. Thanks also to the Las Vegas Marathon. The inaugural Las Vegas Marathon will be on November 3rd, 2024, and they host a marathon as well as a half and a 7.02 mile race, which is inspired by the 702 area code of Las Vegas. Register today using the code MTA for 15 bucks off. Just go to VegasMarathon.com. That code MTA for $15 off the Las Vegas Marathon. Hello and welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower and inspire you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with ultra runner Dave Proctor, who ran across Canada in 67 days, averaging 105.3 kilometers per day. That's 65.4 miles. His new book is called Untethered, the comeback story of one of the longest, fastest runs in history. And just a reminder, as an Academy member, you get access to all of our interviews, podcast episodes, training plans, and more. Find out how to join when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. All right, so here we are at the end of January. It's cold and miserable most days where we live, but we're training for the Tokyo Marathon. Angie and I are both running it, or I'm going to be running part of it. I'll probably be walking part of it. (laughs) Same here. So the struggle is real if you're out there training in the winter and things are not going ideally, you know, it happens, especially if you run enough marathons. We feel you out there. We hope that this interview will give you a good mental boost. Dave is a fun guy to talk to. His mindset is something we can all learn from, even if you never plan on running as far as he did. So we'll get into that in just one moment. Here's a headline I saw uh, come across Runner's World Instagram. It said, six people arrested for stealing gold medals at the Mumbai Marathon. And gold is in quotes. Yeah gold because <laughs> they're not really made of gold. The article says over the weekend, six were arrested after stealing 2,200 finishers medals because the thieves believe that they were actual gold. <laughs> <laughs> the crew pilfered the medals from boxes scattered across various tents at the Mumbai Marathon. Of course, the article says not even Olympic gold medals are made of solid gold. An Olympic gold medal is mainly composed of silver, which is then plated with at least six grams of actual gold. So the 2,200 stolen medals were said to be worth around 1,700 bucks, which is about the value of four actual gold medals. Of course, they are of value to the runners who would like to receive them once they cross the finish line. So yeah, I'm sure if people didn't receive medals, they felt doubly robbed. It made me think about all the medals that we have from our various races. The marathon medals are on the wall in our basement where our treadmill is. Half marathon medals, mine are in a box. I don't know where yours are. In a drawer somewhere, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just think how expensive race registrations would be if the medals were actually solid gold that we were getting. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So I thought it was kind of a funny article. Um, But then I was reading the comment section and people were kind of mad that 
Runner's World brought negative attention to the Mumbai Marathon. Um, the Mumbai Marathon is the largest race in Asia with 55,212 participants last year. Uh, they also have a half and a 10K. I'm not sure how the numbers break down for each event, but this race has been going since 04 and it's been instrumental in promoting a growing culture of running uh, in India. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, speaking of marathons and half marathons, we got some people we want to send out a congrats to um, an academy member named David who just ran his first half marathon. Yeah, he says, I just completed my first half marathon. The goal was 150 and my stretch goal was 145 and I finished in 146. Nice. I joined MTA right before Christmas and was already running the 80-20 running plans. I have another half next month and was mainly using this race to get a feel for the run and pace. For future race plans, I intend to dive into the MTA training plans. This comes from Anne in the Social Distancing Run group. She says, the day before yesterday was my retirement party, and I just celebrated 67 years on Earth. What a party that was. Today, I reached my 2,500-mile medal. Thanks, Angie and Trevor, for all the fantastic medals and challenges. Life is fun. That's been my motto for many years. That is, of course, the medal we designed inspired by the Dutch graphic artist M.C. Escher. Not made of real gold, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but still really cool. Well, congrats, Anne, on retiring. That's epic. And finishing your 2,500-mile challenge. Anne is from Finland, I believe. So always cool to see the global nature of running and the people in this group. What else you got for us? This comes from Kelly in the Academy. She says, I attempted something this morning that I was reluctant to tell anyone about beforehand because I wasn't sure I would make it to the starting line. I started a marathon at 4.30 a.m. to qualify for Marathon Maniacs since I did the Houston Marathon two weeks ago. Because I'm a slower runner, the early start allowed me to have extra time out on the course. I love that the marathon was not overpacked and that everyone was so friendly. I'm now qualified to be a marathon maniac. All right. You have to get your t-shirt. She was saying that at the finish line, she saw an older lady wearing a Marathon Maniac's jacket and, you know, was asking her about her races. And apparently the lady was completing her 281st marathon. Wow. And her goal is to get to, I think, 300 marathons before age 70. So <laughs> <laughs> there's maniacs and then there's maniacs. There's <laughs> yeah. Kelly's well on her way. And finally, this is from Mike. He sent us a message on Instagram. He's a listener to the podcast and finished his first marathon, the Clearwater Marathon in Florida. He said, well, today's the day. I just want to thank you guys for doing what you do. I've listened to just about every episode that's available on Spotify, and it has been a large part of what has been motivating me and educating me on this journey. And then he says, off to the pain cave. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And uh, yeah, he finished his first marathon. And just like everyone does when they finish their first one, he had the thought, I bet I can do this faster next time. <laughs> That's right. And speaking of marathons, we are so happy to have the Las Vegas Marathon as a sponsor of the podcast. The inaugural Las Vegas Marathon will be November 3rd, 2024. And they'll also have a half and a seven mile, actually 7.02 mile race <laughs> inspired by the area code of Las Vegas. And this is going to be an iconic race. It's going to showcase the best that Las Vegas has to offer. The Red Rock Canyons, the eclectic 18B Arts District, the Strip, of course. Uh, Fremont Street is where the finish line is. So it's Vegas, man. There's so much to see and do there. And a marathon is a great way to experience it. So you can etch your name on the archives of running history 
and become a member of the Las Vegas Marathon's inaugural group of finishers. November 3rd, it's got plenty of time to train. Sign up now, and then by September, you'll remember that you signed up, and then you can start training, right? <laughs> if they're on the Trevor training schedule, that is. <laughs> They also offer a generous withdrawal and deferral policy in case that you forget you signed up. <laughs> the Las Vegas Marathon is a Brooksy race production. It's the same company that produces Rebel Race Series, the Mesa Marathon, and the Portland Marathon. Yeah, these people are great. I'm really excited about how they've grown, and I know the Las Vegas Marathon is going to be very well organized. So you can register at VegasMarathon.com. Use the code MTA for $15 off. VegasMarathon.com, 15 bucks off with the code MTA. All right. So let's jump into our conversation with Dave Proctor. Angie, what can you tell us about Dave Proctor? Well, Dave comes from a small town in Alberta, Canada. In his professional life, he's a massage therapist and has three children. And he really has become one of Canada's foremost ultra marathoners. He's been setting world records for about 17 years, including the 24-hour, 72-hour Canadian records. In the summer of 2022, at the age of 41, Dave etched his name in history. He shattered the Trans-Canada Speed Running Record, which had stood for 31 years by conquering the 7,159 kilometers from St. John, Newfoundland to Victoria, British Columbia. He covered an average of 105.3 kilometers per day, and he completed this in just 67 days, 10 hours, and 27 minutes, solidifying his place as one of the greatest ultra runners in Canadian history. Yeah, his book is called Untethered. I think when we talked to him last, he kind of hinted that he had a book coming out, so he sent us a copy. It's an interesting read and was really enjoyable uh, to follow along the journey, and man, he really uh, goes into the pain cave and doesn't hold back. I mean, he'll, he just shares the ups and downs, the ugliness, and the beauty, and everything that's involved in pushing your body that much every day, and also the support crew that he needed to pull this off. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dave Proctor, author of the book, Untethered. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Now that I'm well on my well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Hey, hey, we're on the podcast now with Dave Proctor, author of the book Untethered. Dave, it's great to have you back on the MTA podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. We talked to you last time. It was just two weeks after you finished your trans-Canadian world record run. And of course, it was really interesting for us to be able to read the book, kind of hear the entire blow by blow, plus your perspective now, like a year and a half after you finished, which I'm sure... Mm you know, has changed since we talked to you last time. So we're really excited about talking to you and digging into this. Yeah. And thank you. And yeah, running across the country was hard, of course, but I, I consider writing this book to be even harder, right? I was going to ask you that. <laughs> yeah. You think about it. If I asked you guys to go run a marathon, you'd be like, yeah, I could do that. If I said, you know, go play the guitar and, and do the solo of November Rain, you'd be like, I, I, I don't know how to do that because I don't, I don't play the guitar. <laughs> But so, you know, I'm not a writer, you know, I kind of had to figure it out along the way and it was scary, but mm. I'm super, super happy with the product and all the reviews that we're getting uh, back. I'm so happy to kind of, you know, be able to share the story. I think it really gives a great visceral look at what it takes physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, really to undertake such a huge endeavor. Like it was, yeah. it was mm. really gritty, which I think is powerful. And Thank you. having read a lot of books about running and memoirs like this, I think it's hard to put people in the moment and make them feel the suffering, right? Hmm. But I was, I'm definitely feeling it when I'm, re 
when I read your book. Yeah, that, and that was my hope. That was my hope. You know, ultimately, Untethered is is a walk through, a day by day blow of all of the things that would happen in a four thousand five hundred mile run. I know that that sounds so stupid even to say that, but not only the day by day happenings, but also these macro and micro concepts that you kind of bring into something like this, like the sports imagery and the doubt within and, you know, kind of even the mental management of the voices in your head when you enter yes. into a province and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be here for another 20 days. How do I, how do I manage that? And so, I, you know, I try to give a lot of kind of tricks and tips that I've picked up over the last two decades of, of ultra marathoning to the audience because, hey, I would have loved to have read this before enduring that. Hmm. Would you have done it though if you'd read your own book? <laughs> yeah, probably know. not. Probably not. And so, some people might say, "Hey, yeah, you're trying to scare people away from from doing something like this." And yeah, you you convinced me not to try it, Dave. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah, and you know, I can even say now, after being done and now written a book about it, th- there's a saying that says, "Your lows will be your highs," right? And you know, sometimes when you're reading the book and you're like, whoa, okay, this this is getting ugly. Um, those now, I look back as my highs. You're like, wow, that was cool. It was, hmm. I'm enduring comfort all the time here now. But sometimes when you're having like true discomfort, when you're in the middle of nowhere and it's either the weather or injury or whatever it is, you look back upon it now and those were your highs. It's pretty cool. I remember you saying during our last conversation that comforts were very few out there that, you know, getting like a good cinnamon roll from like a small town bakery was just like, you know, fed your soul and your body kind of. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What's really kind of cool about writing a book about this too is I had those feelings, but circling back and kind of doing it in in an artistic way, like writing a book, it starts making sense of a lot of the things that you're feeling and ideas and behaviors and, and actions that you took and kind of creates a bit of a loop, right? And so, you know, like you, you're bringing up, Angie, about the, the comforts. Yeah, it's absolutely true. There's that saying, you know, desire makes slaves out of kings, whereas patience and discipline make, makes kings out of slaves. And, mm-hmm. you know, we desire so heavily the comforts of the world, but Ultimately, that makes us a slave to those comforts, where as you're reading between the pages of, of Untethered, you can kind of see, I don't know, I kind of was a king out there. I felt like I was taking something. I felt like I was like living my best life. I know that sounds so cliche, mm. but, but I, I kind of was. I remember you saying that you had to put things into a vault because, you know, almost like everything else had to fall away. You could only control your next steps, what you were eating, like how are you taking care of your body, like all those other kind of pressures, the things in life that we, you know, being on hold with customer service, like all those things had to go away and you had to like just put yourself in the moment. Um, Inclu- and- including your foot. Right. Which bothered yeah. you almost the whole way. Just that that wasn't allowed in the vault when you're out there running. Right, right. But you had to open up that vault at night because you can't you can't disregard it always, right? Yeah. You have to open it up at times, right? So there's times to be, you know, processing things emotionally and feeling your feelings. I remember you were really good about pointing that out, but then basically it was your job to run and to set this record. 
you had to be like so in the moment when you were out on the road. How much did you have to rely on the memory of other people, like your crew members, um, your crew chief, Lana Ray? Like how much did you have to ask them questions about their impressions to include in the book? You know, number one, I dictated along the way. So at about 95 or 100 kilometers into every run, every day's run, you know, about 60 miles in, I would I would speak into my phone. But then, you know, the most amazing thing, too, was that when you end up printing off all of that, you know, that journal and reading it, it lays out this incredible groundwork. Like you remember every little specific thing and that kind of brings you back. Then further, yeah, I, I sat down with all my crew members and kind of went over because it wasn't necessarily my point of view that I was wanting to get across as well, too. It was also my crew member's point of view, because as I was running, they were parked up ahead on the side of the road awaiting me. I had a recollection of what I said and how I acted, but ultimately they played such a major role with because they saw it and they were like, well, no, not necessarily this because you were doing that or you said this or you responded in this way. And it's really kind of cool to then take all those influences and come up with kind of the real storyline. Uh, furthermore, there will be a documentary that's going to be coming out here in the next many months. Uh, there was a documentary film crew that was following me along and I haven't seen anything. So it's an independent film. I don't wow. know how she's going to portray me if I'm going to be like moody or bossy or um, I, I'm going to be unattractive. I'll, t- I'll tell you that because I... <laughs> I didn't shave for like two months and stuff, but um, but it, it, I think it was accurate based upon the way that I that I recollected all of the all the memories. I thought it was interesting. There's one chapter contributed by Lana Ray, your crew chief and girlfriend, and I think this was about the time you'd already run all the way across the country. You were in Alberta, and she met up with you again, and you were just a skeleton of yourself, right? You'd been out on the road so long and were so weathered and leathery and had lost so much weight and gristly. And she described just your appearance and how long it would take you to walk like from the bed to the bathroom after running 105 kilometers or 108 kilometers. Totally. That was an interesting chapter to like get that other perspective and be like, oh, wow. Yeah. This guy is really, he's really rough shape out there. (laughs) Oh yeah. No doubt. I think it's the best chapter of the entire book Um, because it's honest it, it paints the other side of the picture. You know, she's even, she even said, you know, yeah, I don't believe everything he said when he leapt out of the vehicle. No, it <laughs> took me this long in order to get out. And, you know, and, and I think what she said was the, the man that she left in Ontario was a very different man. Now, he was a lot yeah. leaner. I think she said, my I look like a frayed Q-tip. Right? Which is, you know, it's, it's this, that's the most complimentary thing that a woman can say about a guy, you know, it's like hugging a, a, a sack of trekking poles. I think, I think she said, so like, that's, you know, Hey, that makes me feel pretty sexy, you know? I, yeah. But, it, but, it, but I think it's, it's a brilliant chapter because it gives perspective and, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's the ultimate perspective because she was there living it from a very different point of view. Um, the reason why I, kind of did that and I asked her to write the chapter was um, Scott Jurek's book North his wife Jenny ended up going back and forth and they kept kind of doing chapters back and forth and I thought that was such an exceptional way to tell the story and I, I got so much out of it and I know a lot of other people did too definitely I got to meet Scott uh, last year. He's a, he's a cool guy in person. And I don't know if you heard, but Mike Wardian, who's also mentioned in the book, he's going to try an Appalachian Trail record uh, this year. 
Yeah, we saw that coming. Yeah, like I, I think <laughs> that he really enjoyed the run across America and the kind of these multi-week runs. But yeah, totally saw that coming. Like, you know, the guy <laughs> doesn't have an end. Um, he's eager yeah, he's and, and, and interested. Oh, he's awesome. Um, so I'm so, so excited for him to make a go with that. Another inspiring ultra runner we've had on the podcast, uh, I wonder if you maybe you could share some thoughts about is Pete Kostelnik. Oh, yeah. So we talked to Pete right after he uh, ran from Alaska to Florida. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on on what Pete has done? Oh, you know, I think we hold, we, I think we need an, an entire hour long podcast to talk about Pete because <laughs> like I, there's a saying that says you, you should never meet your heroes because we lift them up to be something that that really they're not. That's not true. You know, when I met Pete and Pete now and I are great friends, which yeah, his Trans-American speed record, 42 days, it's it's the greatest record in the world, I think. Hmm. Uh, he's incredible. Why would you say that, that you believe that record is the greatest? I think that, you know, he traveled in, well, I'm a Canadian, so in kilometers, 115 kilometers um, a day for 42 days in a row. You know, that mileage of that many kilometers a day or miles a day is astounding, you know? So it's almost like, like we all know that, well, we don't all know, and we can have this debate that I think the marathon is the hardest distance to run fast. 42.2 or 26 miles is, is just, it's brutal. And I think that the distance in America um, from San Francisco to New York City is kind of perfectly terrible, you know, where <laughs> you have to go fast and, but you also have to go along, you know, and his 42 days is it, it sends shivers up my spine. So hmm. you know, as much as people say, hey, Canada being, you know, the widest area of this continent is is brutal. Um, yeah, you, you shorten something up like a marathon. I know it sounds stupid, shorten it up like a marathon, but, you know, 26 miles um, run fast enough will will make you find Jesus pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Pete, Pete's approach to America and, and his, his summer going and doing that, it was spectacular. And I, I can't imagine anybody, I can imagine one person right now breaking it, but it was truly remarkable. And I was thinking too, how hard it is to do something like what you did with figuring out the logistics and having the crew is just invaluable people to stay on top of stuff. So you can just focus on the running. And, but this dude ran self-supported from Alaska, like pushing all the stuff in a stroller. I mean, it's just nuts. That's nuts. And, and he was also covering like a significant distance a day, like, like 50 miles most days. And yeah. so, I mean, yeah, if he was covering a shorter distance and was, you know, hanging out with locals and eating pancakes at the local bakery, <laughs> that's cool. But he wasn't. And so after the Trans-American speed record, I think that, you know, his key to key run, you know, Alaska down, down Florida, I think that was also a finding yourself trip mm. for him. And that's cool. Like sometimes you compete. And then sometimes you look after your soul. And I think that was a year of him looking after his soul in a way that other people are like, oh my goodness, I couldn't even possibly imagine. He was out there and he was having a good time. And, you know, I think that we all need those, you know, yeah, go train hard for a marathon, but then go on that really cool backpacking trip with the family. There's a time for both, I think. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of these runners, I think everyone should know about the great Canadian runners, Terry Fox and Al Howie, the guy that had the record before before you broke it. So can you just briefly tell our listeners who these Canadian runners are? Terry Fox. Um, if you ask any Canadian, he is the 
hero. He's the the Canadian icon. Terry Fox, you know, lost one leg to cancer um, at a very very young age, and at the age of 19 years old, he ran a marathon with a prosthetic leg. And back in 1980, you got to remember that looked like a baseball bat kind of duct taped to his leg. Like it, that was insane, right? But he ran a marathon with that. And then he said, hey, I can do this. I'm going to do this every day across the country. I want to raise $1 for every Canadian. At the time, our population was 27 million people in, in the country. And so he wanted to raise $27 million. And he created a movement. You know, people just stopped what they were doing and everything was Terry Fox. And he kind of showed us what determination and will can do and just showing up. And so in Canada, uh, every child, uh, when they go to school, they go and do the Terry Fox run every year and mm. they raise money for cancer, the Canadian Cancer Foundation. And ever since 1980, when Terry Fox did the run across Canada, the Canadian Cancer Foundation, the, the, the Terry Fox Foundation has raised just under $900 million. So yeah. um, wow. now, of course, as well too, Terry ended up passing away during that run across Canada. Um, he was close to Thunder Bay, almost halfway, just over halfway through, and uh, the cancer came back and he passed away not long thereafter. So we'll always remember Terry. He keeps a big place in a lot of people's hearts, and that's mine as well, too. Yeah. Um, Al Howie is an absolute running legend. When I started running ultramarathons like 19 years ago, I heard about this guy, and he ran across Canada and 100 kilometers a day for 72 days in a row. And just who does this? Uh, he would routinely <laughs> run from one city to the next, win the marathon and run home. Like that was his thing. That's what he did. And you're like, who, who is this guy? And so all throughout the, my, my running career, I was thinking like, yeah, you know, I ran a hundred kilometers or yeah, I ran a hundred miles or ran, ran 200 miles, but you know, I didn't run a hundred kilometers a day for 72 days in a row. Like that's a mythical. And so I think over the years I thought, you know, maybe, maybe I could do this. And so that was, that was like 15 years ago. And mm. I'm absolutely honored and I'm very thankful that people like him did this so that people like me can dream. My hope is that somebody who's listening to this podcast right now is going, hmm, you know, it might not be like six months of work or two blocks of training or, you know, might not even be a year, but might be a decade away. But if you just start to chip away at those little pieces, you know, fine tuning yourself, making yourself 1% better every day. Um, yeah, maybe I can run across America. Maybe I can run across Canada, Australia, maybe not Russia right now, because that's, <laughs> that's a different story. That's a different podcast altogether. Yeah. There'll be some tough logistics. <laughs> I would say, I would say, yeah. I thought about running across Maryland. Yeah. But only the skinny part. That's like two miles across. <laughs> yeah. You could go after the fat part or the skinny part. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the skinny part now. Maybe the fat part later. How about that? <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. It, it was almost like this whole process is like three different journeys. There was the preparation to even starting your run, including, you know, when you tried in 2018 and had to pull out due to injury mm. and your mindset, your um, process in 2018 and how that differed um, from 2022 and realizing that you had to do it for you this time. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit because as amazing it, as it is to do something for charity, and that's a huge part of many people's journeys, it's not selfish to do it for ourselves either. 
Yeah, and I, I, I think we need to have that conversation, right? And, and that's the way I kind of positioned the book as well, too. I start right into Newfoundland. I start right into the run in 2022. And then the next chapter is going through, you know, the run in 2018 where I failed. And it was a very different run. So you could then easily compare the two runs. And the biggest thing, the biggest thing was that the second run was ultimately for myself, by myself. And I shouldn't say by myself, you know, definitely incredible crew members, but it was pared down by like 99%. And that's okay. And in fact, it wasn't just okay. I found out after a while, like a number of weeks of being out there running, that it was actually kind of nice that I was out there running for me. Um, so I got up in the morning and I, it's not that I needed to run. It's that I, I got to run. I had the opportunity to run. And sometimes, you know, you feel like even in training, you think if I need to do something, that's a lot harder to do than I want to do something. Yeah. Um, I need to make this meal for my, my partner versus I want to make this meal for my partner. Such a significant difference. And, and getting out of bed in the morning on day 35 after running, you know, a gazillion miles, you know, it felt good to go, hey, when I swing my legs out of bed, I'm doing this for me, you know, 10 miles into the day, the next 10 miles, that's for me too. Yeah, I've, I felt for a while that I always had to give people a reason of, of why and give them, you know, and even almost even apologize a little bit because people say, oh, hey, what did you run for? Well, I ran for myself. It's kind of awkward silence, right? Well, what about, what about cancer? What about, you know, children's this and that? And you know what? You're absolutely right. And those campaigns have a purpose as well, too. And I would love nothing more than to go out and do more rare disease work or doing work with Mito Canada. But I think a big part of the success, especially now circling back and, and really, you know, completing my thoughts after writing a book, you know what? You're enough. You know, you are worthy of whatever you're going through. And if you can feel like you're worthy of whatever you're going through, you can go through it. Some people don't feel like they're worthy of the suffering they're going mm. through. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that I quoted in the book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, Viktor Frankl. I forget the quote exactly, but his greatest fear was that he would become abundantly aware that he was not worthy of his own level of suffering. Yeah. And now, of course, people who haven't read the book, um, he survived the Holocaust um, as a Jewish war prisoner. And so, of course, you and me, we would quit in the middle of a run or a race and the world wouldn't end. He quits and he dies. Um, when you're not worthy of whatever you're going through, you will quit. You're absolutely right. I think that a lot of people, a lot of people don't really feel that, that they're worthy of suffering. But I think we all are. And there's nothing better feeling in the world than coming out the other side and standing tall. Is there a reason why you switched directions this time? Yes and no. Um, yeah, I started off on the other side last time. So I'll start off on this side this time. I wanted to experience it in a different way. Even the parts that I ran, the the time before, I only got one third of the way across. I wanted to experience it looking a different way. I also wanted to kind of experience it in the way that Terry Fox experienced it. You yeah. know, I wanted to start where he started. I wanted to run the roads that he ran. Because I, I feel like it, I was very lonely out there a lot of the time, like you're running on your own. But the coolest thing is you're never really ever truly alone. You're running with ghosts that have been there before and they've suffered and they felt the same feelings, a lot the same feelings that you felt where you're feeling them right now. And I think that's kind of rad. You know, Terry Fox did this back in 1980. That's the year I was born. But he's still very, very much alive. So it felt like his spirit was with you the whole time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially until, 
you know, when he took his last step, so the last many days. Um, but I also had the privilege of, of connecting with Terry Fox's brother, you know, Fred Fox on the phone. We had a really good lengthy conversation about brothers. My brother was out there crewing me at the time and me and my brother were kind of at one another. We were just endlessly frustrated with one another. And, and you know, other crew members, you say, hey, can I get more, you know, hummus in that next sandwich or whatever? They're like, yeah, I got you. You know, you say that to your brother. All of a sudden, he reverts back to when he was nine years old and you were seven years old and, you know, you're being a jerk and he's being a, you know, entitled bastard. And, you know, like, it's it's weird. It's like, okay, why are, why are we fighting about this? This is stupid. And you pointed out that your brother wasn't isn't a distance runner either. So he didn't right. really understand the perspective that you were coming from. <laughs> yeah. And I think he tried. He tried his best. He really did. But honestly, he just didn't have the energy to, to go there. And so, yeah, all through the book, you, you sense this frustration between Ottawa and Thunder Bay, where he was crewing me, which is the hardest part of, of Canada. It's a hilliest. Mm-hmm. It's the it's most remote. And he and I were, were saber rattling out there. He was being the big brother and I was being the, the brother out there doing the thing. And it was awkward at times. But and I think you picked that up in between the pages for mm-hmm. sure. And that whole area is full of lakes. So would you say that? It was probably the most mosquito filled. Oh, that was insane. Yeah, that and anything. Yeah, that in Manitoba, uh, just west of, of there as well, too. And they're huge. They're not the size of birds, but but they're not far off. And um, <laughs> it's amazing when you're running and you look back behind you and you just see this massive cloud of, of bugs. And you just think, you know, I really hope I don't have to scratch my leg or something, you know, because <laughs> they're on you. Um mm. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And but that whole area along Lake Superior, Lake Superior just truly is superior. It's a monstrous body of water. And you don't quite know it until you're running across it. And seven days later you're still running across it. Um yeah, the bugs in there were unreal. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. Quick break to talk about your joints and muscles and how to recover faster and prevent breakdown. There's a product that we live by. It's called Joint Health Plus, made by Prevenex. We take it every day. In fact, it's clinically proven to improve your flexibility and reduce your stiffness in just 7 to 10 days. And now we're also excited that Prevenex has another product backed by science. It's called Muscle Health Plus. That's right. As someone who is really passionate about strength training, I'm really excited about taking Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus combines clinically effective doses of creatine, monohydrate, MyHMB, branched-chain amino acids, other essential amino acids, and estrogen to make the most comprehensive muscle health supplement available. Muscle Health Plus was designed to fuel your muscle health by decreasing muscle breakdown, increasing lean muscle mass, boosting protein synthesis, enhancing your strength, and more. As runners, we know how important all this is to our running and running performance, and of course, strength training is part of that. Prevenex combines ingredients that you'd normally have to get from two to three different products, so you'll be taking a great product and saving money at the same time. And to help you save even more, if you use the code MTA Strength at checkout and have Muscle Health Plus as one of the products in your shopping cart, you'll save 15% off your entire order, even if you've previously used our MTA code for Joint Health Plus. Just visit Prevenex.com. That's P R E V I N E X. Prevenex.com. Use the code MTA Strength at checkout for 15% off Muscle Health Plus. 
I'd like to have you talk about some of the, the, the mindset that you needed and the mental strategies you used as you ran across Canada. So let's just give people an idea of how things kind of got off to a rough start uh, back in the Atlantic provinces. And then how did you deal with that as you're going across the continent? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's, there's always things, you know, no matter what, like you think about running a marathon, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have a thing or two come up, but what if you run two and a half of them a day and then seven days a week and 67 days of those back to back to back, I started off rocky to say the least, you know, on day one, I, I started feeling a tickle in my throat and, and I, I got COVID, um, and that sucked. That was not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, ultimately right away, you had to kind of suspend your bias. Uh, everything you read in the news says you can't exercise through COVID. So I just said, you know what, I'll take it day by day. If I can't, then I won't. Then I'll stop, I'll circle back and I'll try it again. But let's see how this goes. So, you know, you have to kind of also accept your current state. And so there's you know, a number of little mindset bits. You know, I think that too, you know, we always look for comfort. The comfort that you understand and know is the comfort that you remember. So, you know, let's say three days in and you're really uncomfortable running with COVID and you've been running for, you know, 230 miles at this point, you still remember what it's like to be sitting on your sofa the day before you started. But on day 45, you don't remember um, what comfort (laughs) feels like. So you're like, well, this is this, right? Like, like this is what just, this is this. And so, you know, getting through that first week with COVID was just ugly to say the least. Um, Mm. But then, you know, I got onto the mainland of Canada, you know, nine days across uh, Newfoundland. And quite early on, because of the embankment in the road, I ended up, you know, fracturing my, my foot. And that was a really ugly, difficult uh, piece where I still had over 6,000 kilometers left to run, yet I'm feeling broken. I'm feeling my, my navicular is, is fractured. And in fact, it was. Uh, we circled back at the end and it, it was with MRIs. And so how do you mentally manage this? You know, and, and I just said the, the, the phrase as well too, this is this is the most powerful phrase. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I that under- stuck out to me too. I have yeah. thought about it multiple times this week since I read that, because there are so many situations that applies to, you know, there's obviously there's chosen suffering, you know, you yeah. sign up for a race, you do a challenge like, you know, you're talking about, but you know, everyone listening has unchosen suffering. And sometimes right. it feels like, this current hardness is going to stretch on forever. It's hard to feel hope in the midst of that. And I think that that statement, this is this, is so powerful. Yeah. And I remember talking to my sports psychologist while I was running uh, out there and, and we talked about this and that's exactly what she said, Dave, this is this. And she said, there's so much power in understanding that you can accept this. You know, of course we don't want to accept it, but so much is wasted so much is wasted in wanting something to be different than really kind of what it is. And so, mm. hey, yeah, my foot is broken. Can I run on it? Yes. Does it hurt? Yes. Can I accept it? And can I suspend my wanting this to be any different for the next 50 some odd days? Yeah, I think I could do that because this goal is bigger than, than that. And so, you know, that saying this is this, it's so beautiful and so all encompassing because you could tuck that aside and say, well, yeah, it is what it is. It's not going to be any different until I stop and then I, I can heal, but I'm not going to stop until I get to Victoria. So I'm just going to have to accept this and accept it for being it and not anything different. And um, I think there's so much suffering that takes place with us wanting something to be different than really truly what it is. 
Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Another fascinating part that you brought out was relating different parts of your being to four different animals. You know, that was just really fascinating. I was thinking like, you know, maybe other people relate to different animals, but it would be really cool if you could kind of share those voices, those parts of you, you know, as personified by animals. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I don't know, at the beginning of when I, you know, kind of came up with this, I thought, I I thought this was so stupid. And I thought, I don't know, what, what am I thinking, right? And this was about like nine years ago or so I was my kids were younger. My oldest is now 18, uh, but my kids were younger and I was reading a lot of, you know, storybooks to them, like, like Winnie the Pooh, right? And now Winnie the Pooh is so rad because you got Piglet and you got Tigger and you got Eeyore and you got all the characters. And if you really think about it, they just personify feelings, emotions, mm-hmm. thoughts, ideas. But we put so much attention on children, on better understanding and, and identifying their thoughts and feelings and ideas and mental health. But yet when we're running, I don't know about you guys, but it's a hot mess of a lot of thought, a lot of thoughts and feelings and ideas and everything gets either catapulted out of, you know, out of the stratosphere or, or, or remains buried deep inside. And neither one of those things are, are effective and they, they do not yield positive results when it comes to execution on race day. So what I've done is I've identified four animals that are always with me when I run. And my number one guy is my salamander. He is prolific. He's the only of my four with a name and his name's Emilio. And he is pasted on my left brain and between my skull and my brain. And he always, always, always talks. And he doesn't talk nicely. Um, (laughs) And he tells me that, you know, I should quit. I should stop. Uh, What are you thinking? You're fat. You're lazy. You're stupid. Nobody likes you. You're unattractive. All the things, all of the things. He tells me to go get a second bowl of ice cream. And he's always that guy that gets in my head right away in the morning when, when my alarm goes off and I hit snooze, right? He's the guy that makes me hit snooze. Um, but, you know, he never stops. And I've come to understand that he will never stop. Like he, he will always be there. He's present all the time until the day I die. And he was there right when I was born and he's going to be there until the day I die. Slippery little guy, isn't he? Yeah. You know, he's, he's kind of... Like you can almost imagine, he's kind of like wormy and squirmy, and like he's just he's he's got he, he's got a voice of Danny DeVito, if that helps, you know. Like yeah, so you can't ever get rid of him. You can just you know look somewhere else, pay attention to a different voice, and so really, it's not even a voice. My eagle never ever says anything. He's just there. An eagle. Yes, and when you look up at an eagle, you know he's way above my head, and he is always facing in the direction that I'm running in. And whenever I look up at him, I see he's in control. You know, he, he sees something up there that I can't see from where I'm standing on the earth. That's worthwhile going and getting. And so he's stoic. Um, he's resourceful. Um, he's wise. And, you know, like those rustic cowboys, they don't even have to say anything. They just give you that look. And you're like, oh, yeah, I see you. You know, <laughs> they're so wise. And so, yeah, so he's always flying well above my head. And then you got, of course, you got your coyote. And my coyote is always in the ditch beside me or in the trail behind me or, or whatever. And my coyote bites a lot. And he bites my legs and he takes, you know, chunks out of my flesh. And he's bitten me thousands and thousands of times all my life. And, but yet I'm still here, you know. And every time you get bit, you think, oh, okay, this, you know, this is the one that's going to kill me. It doesn't kill you. It just hurts, right? It's, it's your relationship with pain, right? And my coyote, you know, he doesn't respect me much. He doesn't like think much of me. Um, I'm just a meal for him. 
but he does pay attention and, and make eye contact with, you know, the big black fire breathing dragon way up in the sky doing figure eights in the distance because he is ominous, in control, capable, powerful, beautiful. He's just everything that you would ever, ever want in a leader in, in anything. You, you, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing to be him? You know? So long story short, I am him. That is me in the distance. I am the dragon. I am strong. I'm capable. I'm all of those things. I'm just uncomfortable being those things, right? Mm -hmm. And I look up upon him sometimes not only as, hey, that's the beacon of strength, but that I am strong. And it's a reminder that you can do hard things and that you, you can not listen to that salamander and you can ignore that dragon because you're strong and capable. And sometimes you just have to tether yourself. I remember you saying to your yes. dragon, let him tow you, you know, forward. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's, you know, a part of the book. And that's why, you know, the book was supposed to be called Outrunner because uh, Outrun Rare and, and, but at the last minute I changed it to Untethered because, you know, we seem to think that our tethers are the things that keep us down. And you know, let's face it, you know, Emilio, your salamander, he tethers you. That voice in your head tethers you. It just does right? Yeah. Um, but we never really ever think about tethering to a greater power, to a mm -hmm. greater source, you know? And seeing that dragon, and I know with my run across Canada, I envisioned this long rope, a long tether coming out from my chest that extended up and in, in front of me and up into the sky and the dragon would take a hold of it and give me a toe. He would give me a ride uh, when times got hard or when I was running up mountains or I was at the end of my days or and you can tether to a greater part of yourself. It's not just about being tethered down, but are we really ultimately at times tethering up? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful metaphor. You introduce those characters in the beginning, and then they kind of reoccur throughout. And hmm. as you're going over the Canadian Rockies, you're tethered to the dragon, and he's he's pulling you and yeah. dragging you up. And then at the end, you realize you are the dragon. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, right? Yeah, you're untethered. You know, because... Exactly. The final day, like, yeah, let's just go there. I looked around and there were, there were no animals. There was no mm. Danny DeVito voice in my head. Honestly, there was no pain. Like there was no bites. I was looking around for that coyote. He wasn't there. You get so, so often you look around for them. You know, the eagle, there was really no point, right? And the dragon wasn't there because ultimately he was you. So if you were tethering to him, you were therefore untethered. Um, you mm. at that point... For a short period of time, I felt invincible. And I can't tell you, you know, how wonderful of a feeling that is. Even for a brief period of time in one's life, in one day for the rest of your life, I will always feel that. And I will never, ever let go of that feeling ever again hmm. of feeling untethered. And I think you said in the book, that feeling gave you so much buoyancy that you just wanted to keep going, you know, like you had reached your the yeah, end goal, you know, zero. you were exhausted, you were, you know, lost 18 pounds and had a broken foot, you needed to recover, but still, you know, your soul had just expanded to the point where you were like, I, I want well, to maintain this feeling. <laughs> yeah. You thought about turning around and doing it again the opposite way. <laughs> oh, and that, and that's absolutely true. There was a point in time where I was running across Vancouver Island at the end and it was a 35 kilometer 22 mile run and i got thinking i'm like I, I when i stop this run in a matter of hours i'll no longer I, I will never feel this good ever again in my life i know that um, i'm not running across russia or circumnavigating the moon that's it's not going to happen and it kind of got me sad 
You know, yeah. I, I got I got thinking that I don't ever want to not feel like this again. Like, no, I, I like this. I want this. And in fact, I started feeling like I needed it. So I, I convinced myself that I wasn't going to tell anybody I was going to just circle around the monument and run away. And all the media was going to be like, what the heck? Um, <laughs> and but then very quickly, you start thinking, well, I think that's kind of how meth addicts feel. Mm. You know, afraid of the come down mm-hmm. is real. Hey, I think I'm addicted to coffee, but that's about it. Hey, probably addicted to running, let's face it. And exercise, that's a dopamine dump unto itself. But of course, you quickly realize I've got children, I've got a life to get back to, I've got responsibilities. I, I want to make the choice to not actively be that person that's chasing that dragon. And would you say like that third aspect was the most challenging part of the journey of where you had to like, your body really had to re-regulate your serotonin levels because mm-hmm. you had been really chasing that dopamine high for days and days and days. Your body had acclimated to it. I think you talked about the book Dopamine Nation, which is an excellent read. And I, you were really honest about what the aftermath was like for you. Um, so maybe go into that a little bit. Yeah, this might be relevant to anyone who's felt post-race blues, which is a real thing yes. that marathoners feel. Absolutely. And a lot of my friends who, like guys like Pete, you know, told me, hey, brace for impact. And I, I, I don't know if I didn't believe him or I just didn't want to believe him. You know, in the book, I do my best to explain it. I think it was multifaceted. I think that coming down off of a high, you know, there is that dopamine deficit that takes place. And the best way I kind of explained it is every province I ran across, um, I felt higher and higher and higher as much as I felt broken, like my body and my legs, I felt broken, but I also felt good. In fact, not only good, but I felt amazing. I explained it in the book that there was almost like a doctor that was coming in, sneaking into my hotel room at night, injecting me with these feel-good you know, endorphins that made you just motivated and driven and happy. And you got so mm. much of it. I can't imagine how much dopamine was going through my system. And then the day that you stop, he doesn't show up. Mm. And it didn't, it didn't really feel bad right away. I felt kind of relieved, like, hey, I don't need to run tomorrow. This is great. I get to go to Starbucks and grab a coffee. After many days, and as well, as well, too, I was in an air cast for the better part of two and a half months. So you didn't have access to your drug. No, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I could not exercise. I'm still hung up on the fact that you didn't go to Tim Hortons to get a coffee. I know. Yeah. You, I'm, I'm one of these Canadians who's like, you know what? Tim Hortons is actually just not very good. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tim. You know, um, you know, it's, it's yeah, I, I do prefer Starbucks. Um, you know, I think that. Over the next many weeks, I started feeling the best word I could use is empty. I felt void of feeling good. And I would eat food. I would kiss my girlfriend. I would hug my kids. I know it sounds stupid, but I didn't feel a damn thing. And I was eager to feel something. And boy, after a period of time, um, I was talking to my psychologist and talking about thoughts and feelings and ideas. And I was busy blaming a lot of people in my life. And I was busy kind of acting out. The acting out sessions got worse, the blame got worse, and it got worse to a point, you know, and I talked about in my book where I considered taking my life. It was ugly. Mm -hmm. And I knew enough to know that I got a lot to live for and that I needed to go get some support and help. And so I ended up at the hospital and that was the beginning of all the antidepressants and it was, it was hard. And, and, you know, it wasn't, Hey, take an antidepressant and you're good. 
No, um, it's not that way. And the damage was continually happening. And I was harming relationships and acting out in ways that I'm very embarrassed. Um, I wrote this book and I was thinking, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write it organically and I'm going to get to a point in my, and I'm not going to include that because it's kind of embarrassing, you know, but I also think it's, I, I wrote the book very honestly about the good and the bad. Um, yeah. it's, it's very forthcoming. And so hell, you know what, let's just do it. And I sent it to the editor and I also sent it to guys like Pete and Lazarus Lake and on and so forth. And, and they said, keep it in there. Mm-hmm. Like this is yes. important because the lows after the highs are real. And this is when you need support. And we also need to educate the people around us to know that those high achievers, those people who are going after things, bear with them. They'll be back, right? They're, they're, mm. they're coming back. And so it was a long year after the fact. I think I even alluded to the hardest part of this run was not the run itself. It was the recovery after the run. Mm. And I'm glad I wrote it. I've been getting incredible responses from people. I feel like when you open up, you others open up and it just creates a beautiful world where we're like, hey, yeah, me too. I totally get it. Mm. Um, but I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to admit that I was weak or that I was broken or wrong or, or whatever you want to call it. And you're none of those. Like nobody's any of those at any one time. But, you know, I think that sometimes people will look up to people like me who do these things. But I think that we need to be honest with the community and say, yeah, as strong as I was, I was teetering on the other side as well, too. Yeah. And I think people are going to really relate to that, that when there are highs, there are going to be lows. Even, Mm. like you said, the strongest, most motivated, positive people can go through that. And it's not a weakness. And just by sharing your story, I think it's really going to give people hope that there is something on the other side that whatever they're going through right now, this is this. Mm -hmm. To seek resources, to talk to people, to get the help that they need. Um, because, you know, ultimately there are going to be things in life that you can't do on your own, really. We're not meant to interact and live on this earth by ourselves. And that's not the healthiest way to operate. So I think that's really important. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, I, I, I also think, though, too, that part of my healing from coming off of that year was, thank God I was writing a book. You know, I'm not an artistic guy. I don't play the piano. I don't sing. I don't paint. I don't. But I also thought that I, I couldn't. Uh, because I, I just don't have that gene. I, I'm not, but I'm now a writer, you know, and I, I feel that putting your thoughts and feelings on paper when it comes to connecting the dots with what happened over that last year and also being honest with the world, then therefore I can be honest by, with myself. Hmm. Um, I, I feel the best part of my hurt healing over the last year was writing this book. So, and it was, um, the most wonderful thing, uh, sorry, I'm just jumping here now, but is when I end up getting private messages on Instagram or Facebook or whatever from people who are reading the book all over the world. And it's since I'm opening up, they're opening up. And I want to tell you that I'll read every single message that comes in because, oh, like there's nothing better in the world than knowing that your message has landed with people in a, in a positive way. So if anybody wants to send me a message, it's such an honor to receive that from you. Yeah, that's cool, man. So everyone check out Run Proctor on Instagram. How do you like to get messages if we want to direct people somewhere? Oh yeah, yeah. Instagram is a perfect place. So everybody check out the book Untethered, the comeback story of one of the longest, fastest runs in history by Dave Proctor. 
Well, thank you for sharing uh, your story with us. Looking forward to uh, seeing what's next. And you're always welcome to come back on the show. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. All right, hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dave Proctor. I didn't even put two and two together that the title of the book, Untethered, had to do with he and his dragon. And like by the time I got to the end of the book, I forgot what the title was. <laughs> and I was just like busy reading it. <laughs> You're sucked into the drama of it. You know, I would like to drive across Canada. Angie and I used to go on these long camping trips during the summer, and we drove all the way to Alaska and back. But one thing we haven't done is drive across Canada. That might be a thing we do someday and see cool stuff along the way. Lots of mountains and beauty and lakes and mosquitoes and all kinds of good stuff. Yes, it is a beautiful country. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for being a listener. If we can help you in your journey, please reach out. We have a contact form on our website, marathontrainingacademy.com. We also have a team of coaches that are very skilled at helping you accomplish whatever goal you're working on, whether it's to run your first marathon, half marathon, ultra or build back after injury, target a PR or a Boston qualifying time. We've got someone on the team who's done it and who can help you do it. Until next time, keep taking action in your goals. It's worth it. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way, right on my way.